and gentlemen, welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Welcome everyone to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet, your one-stop shop for weekly wrestling content. My name is Chris Murray. I'm your host for today's feature show. You can follow all of our shows on Spotify. You can watch all of our exclusive footage on YouTube. And hey, we're on other sites as well, but let's face it, who uses them? Just search Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet and get there quickly. On today's feature show, we're looking back on the wrestling career of the ninth wonder of the world. China, aka Joni Lauder. Let me introduce you to my illustrious panel, 67% of which are stand-ins for the original panel. <laughs> <laughs> my first guest is a China doll, considered by some to be very valuable, but featuring a glazed expression and easily broken if dropped. It's Ross McLeod. <laughs> the glazed expression is very, very true. Especially when we're trying to set up video receiving, like, what button do I use? <laughs> I'm an 84-year-old man stuck in a 27-year-old man's body. Thanks um, for stepping in on the show. You told me you would only come on this show if I don't treat you like a woman or, for that matter, treat you like a man. Yes, yes. Treat me like... <laughs> I said that to you at the time. I've, I've no idea what the next lyrics are of that song. <laughs> Christ, I'm, I'm actually just thinking, I'm looking at a pile of ironing that I need to do later. There's an NWO t-shirt there, and when you introduce the rest of the panel, this will become clear. The last time I believe the four of us were all on a show together was the NWO show oh, back it? in uh, February 2020. What a day. Wow. What a day. My second guest is media personality Black China, a socialite, an entrepreneur, but sadly forever overshadowed by someone with the same name. It's Scott McLeod. <laughs> I had no idea where you were going uh, with that intro, uh, Chris. Uh, but I'm happy to be here. I mean, I was one of the few people that was originally scheduled to be on the show. Yes. Then when we hit up the chat, I forgot I was on it because we have just so much going on right now. As you say, we've got so much, so many shows in our back catalog, it's hard to keep track even for us. Yeah, I mean, you are on about 20 shows a week at the moment. So thank you for taking the time to, to be on this one. And last, but by no means least, my third guest is the country of China. Suspiciously absent on social media, always good to have on your side. And what's that? Features a region called Wang Dong. Let's not even go there. It's Andy Mitchell. <laughs> hey, how are you doing? Uh, good to be here. Again, a late stand-in as well. Thank you, as always. Thank you to all of you, because I think this is going to be a really good show. And right, I'm going to put this out there straight away. Lots of people think that China's career is tarnished because after being a wrestler, she became an adult film star. Now, me personally, I don't. I don't care about that at all. I think she was a phenomenal wrestler and mm -hmm. a significant wrestler, a pioneering professional wrestler. And no, I'm not talking about 2012's China is the Queen of the Ring. Please watch that in the privacy of your own home. Um, here's what's interesting, right? China, I think every person who is a wrestling fan, everyone knows who China is. But China yeah. had 91 matches in total for the WWF. 
from 1998 to 2001. That like screams flash in the pan for me, but she was actually so mm. significant in the period of wrestling that she was in. Mm. So that's what we're going to go into in this show. She was known as the ninth wonder of the world. I said that at the top of the show, but when you think about that, that's actually such a big honor in the wrestling world. Like she followed in the footsteps of Andre the Giant, who's called the eighth wonder of the world, following, of course, the seven wonders of the world. I think I just love how iconic that nickname is for her. And we're now going to attempt to dive into her career. I thought we'd start and go around you and ask you what your earliest China memory was, because I'm sure we all have all started watching wrestling at different points. We've all gone and watched back countless hours of wrestling that have happened in the past. So I'll start with Scott. Do you remember what your first memory of China was? Was it a match? Was it a, a moment? Ah. Uh think for me the earliest point I've seen China might have been when me and Ross had a VHS of King of the Ring 2000 and she comes out with Eddie Guerrero accompanying him to his uh, quarterfinal match against Val Venus because Val Venus had Trish in his corner so they were kind of balancing each other out. That would have been my earliest recollection of, of China being with Eddie Guerrero and it was only after that years later that I saw China as part of DX and old clips. And, you know, it was weird because I remember watching at the time when DX got back together with Triple H and Sean. That was because of a video and I wondered why she wasn't coming back. And obviously at the time I was too young to know about her other career pursuits that WWE didn't like to mention. And uh, that was a, a revelation when you first find that out. And that thing with Eddie, we'll talk about it, was so brief. Yeah, I think it's such a memorable part of her career that doesn't get talked about nearly as much. Yeah, I remember, obviously, the Eddie Guerrero run, because that's run about when I started watching. And it, it's weird to think about how unique she was and how, how like, ahead of her time she was. You know, she was a, a woman in there mixing it up with the guys. It's weird because I don't know if maybe I'm showing my age and you guys will remember it as well. I believe it was the Sun newspaper had a token thing that if you took it in the WH Smith, you got a DVA, a VHS, sorry, that's how old I am, a VHS copy of WWE Live in the UK, which was just four random matches that had taken place in the UK. It was about an hour long. And one of the matches on it was Bulldog versus Sean from In Your House 1998. And China was there. And like at this time, China was like seen as a big deal. And she was, you know, she's the woman that's manhandling guys. You know, she's... But because I'd seen her and grown up with her, like the Eddie Guerrero character, you're like... It didn't seem groundbreaking until you like you did your research, didn't it? It just seemed like she was there, which I think is a it's a good thing. Like if you come in wrestling when something is seen as the norm, when you go back and watch older matches when it's sort of new and it's fresh, you'll maybe not appreciate it as much until you look into it. You know what I mean? I do remember like when I was watching the first time I saw WrestleMania fourteen. Wrestling was this big massive thing, but I still wasn't. And, and I remember seeing her accompanying. Triple H, but I think when I actually first kind of noticed her was when she was co-intercontinental champion with Chris Jericho, which uh, again, they don't talk about it's stripping for the record and essentially it's Chris Jericho was a champion. No one had seen anybody quite like her before and obviously as kids we don't know what we're talking about, but no, that was my first memory seeing her with Triple H. That's the perfect place to start because that is how she joined the WWF. She actually debuted on February 16th, 1997. I went back and watched all this old footage because I feel like these are the times that are most forgotten about is when she first came in pre-DX. So she comes in, it's In Your House Final Four, I do believe, and she comes to the aid of Triple H, choking out Marlena, who was on the side of gold dust mm. that Triple H was facing. What I love is China gets pulled away after ragdolling Marlena for a bit in the crowd, and the camera's right up in the crowd, and you just hear this crowd member say, she was bigger than anybody. 
<laughs> I don't know why it's just stuck with me so much uh, as she's getting dragged away by security. Now, the next night on Raw, she makes her first appearance in a WWF ring, and what a debut it is. She gets in the ring and once again just literally ragdolls Marlena. It's not really explored fully what's going on yet. Triple H is interviewed later on Raw, and he says, I don't know who this woman is, and I don't care. The next week on Raw, she comes out during Triple H's match and squares up to actual Bret Hart, who, keep in mind, at this point in 1997, was WWF champion two weeks before. Bret Hart puts her over massively, in my opinion. He just basically backs off from her. He's like, nope, nope. And she's gesturing to him, you, me. It's really, really entertaining to watch. Then the next week on Raw, she appears alongside Triple H during Goldust's match, and they give her the Andre and Great Cali camera angle, like almost from her feet. It just puts her over massively early on in her time. Triple H and her both put the boots to Goldie before she press slams Bill Alfonso, the ref, into two other refs. Again, you're just like, what is happening here? This is insane. The next week, joining Triple H on his way to the ring, the Fink finally announces her, and he just says, being accompanied by China. And the legend begins. China's book is really interesting. I've read little bits of it. I've not read the whole thing. I definitely want to go away and give it a try. She actually mentions in her book that the name was kind of given to her ironically because there was absolutely nothing fragile about her. She was absolutely stacked. Let's face it. She could batter every man on the roster. Triple H and Shawn Michaels, I do believe, spotted her in a gym or something. And Triple H wanted to bring her in as a heater, which I do believe in wrestling terms is a big, Fuck off, person who has your back. <laughs> well, she trained in uh, Killer Kowalski's wrestling gym, which uh, Triple H was also a part of as well. So they actually bonded over that. He wanted to bring her in, but McMahon was like, no. He was like, we can't have her against the men because he just felt it would like just ruin the mystique of wrestling. And Andy, I, I read that she had a deal on the table from WCW, and she was like, yep, I'll take that. And only when that word got back to Vince... Did the offer come from the WWE yeah. and she signed with them? They wanted to bring her in, put her into the NWO and have her as the only woman member of NWO, but it was Shane McMahon who was the one that was like, well, actually come to WWF and we can actually sort something out because he saw potential in her. And I think it was uh, Shane that convinced Vince to bring her in. But that would have yeah. been interesting to see her in WCW. But again, she would have just been like another Virgil or something like that, just in the background. You wonder what could have happened there. Because I'm guessing the first woman in the NWO wouldn't have been until Miss Elizabeth, maybe. But back on WWF's side, she appears at WrestleMania 13, which I think I've told you guys quite recently. It's one of the few WrestleManias that I've actually never seen. I'm sorry. Mm. She's alongside Triple H in his match against Goldust. And again just ragdolls Marlena. Honestly, she makes this woman look like a child with a toy. Watched it back during the week and was just so, so impressed with her. A few weeks later on Raw, after helping Triple H to run a victories, he gets a match with The Undertaker for the WWF Championship. So already, like, China's helping Triple H to all these wins and it leads to a main event match on Raw. On the ramp, China goes face-to-face with Taker early on in the match and neither back down. Taker's the WWF champion and China is squaring up to him. Honestly, I just thought at this point she's been put over huge. This run, I think, only lasts a few months. She's obviously years away from a first match in the WWF, but it wasn't quite fully unadulterated attitude either yet. Triple H as a character hadn't been fleshed out at all yet, really. Not quite at the days of DX yet, but these early days alongside Triple H, I thought were amazing. Scott, uh, I'm guessing you've seen bits of this back. Those early and debut days what did you think of those 
Yeah, the way they did the debut, because they really zoom in right on on Marlena. So then all you see is this massive arm just come up behind her and ragdoll her. And you've seen Terry Reynolds. She is like six. And you can play that woman's ribcage like a xylophone. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was weird, because Triple H before that, he had this whole gimmick of uh, coming out with a different woman every week on his arm. And he went to the street with Goldust because he was trying to lure Marlena away, show her what a real man was all about. And that's when they started revealing that Marlena and Goldust were really married in, in real life. So, yeah, then he, she comes in as, uh, and they try to portray as this fan who's randomly attacked somebody, but then he comes out with Triple H is still kind of the blue blood. He's kind of slowly fading away from that. It's Jeezy's bodyguard. She's not a typical valet that you would have seen at the time. I think it was really good for Triple H at this time because the year before he was meant to get that King of the Ring win, which then got taken away from him. And the original Hunter Hearst talented, there's really nothing to him that stands out. But now he's with China. She's backing him up. And then he goes on to win the King of the Ring. In 97, he has this feud with Mankin that she plays a big part in. So it really feels like China, her showing up, it coincides with a really big push for Triple H. Because I think at the time when he's feuding with Goldust, he is the IC champion. He soon loses that to Rocky Maivia. But even then, he still goes on to bigger things with her by his side. Andy, Scott kind of touched on this there, and I wanted to get both you guys' opinions of this. But yeah. how important do you think China was in helping kickstart the WWF career of Triple H? I think, as Scott sort of put it, it's like he was still kind of seen as Hunter House Helmsley. He was this mid-carder and obviously was punished. But I just feel like when you think of his early career, you obviously you always had that manager around him. But always, it's the one that stands out is China because it was just so unusual to see, obviously, a woman with that sort of physique and obviously paired with a man because we're quite large in life. And I think Triple H, well, obviously, Shawn Michaels had a bit to help. But I feel like it, it like put him on notice because as soon as he was paired with China, it was like he started to get seen more and he started to slowly get back into that sort of main event, upper main event limelight. A lot of that's to do with China. Because they always say like Triple H is like, his wrestling business mind is amazing. So it's like, yeah, he just saw that and he was like, people want to see more. And if he's with this person, then obviously they'll, they'll see him together. Ross, I wonder if Triple H's character obviously went in this essentially winning streak as a result of China being mm-hmm. his bodyguard. Do you think that played a part in the push to the King of the Ring that would come later? I think Triple H, we talked about his business mind there, Andy mentioned it. Triple H was being punished. He was being held down for his role in the clique. Bringing in China, all of a sudden, you know, because fans didn't care that Triple H was being pushed down the card. No one cared about the blue blood Hunter Hearst Helmsley. They, they kind of liked the fact that he was getting his ass kicked. It's said that Triple H isn't a fan of the fact that Mick Foley made him legitimate as a WWE champion with the run as Cactus Jack, and that's why Mick Foley doesn't get a lot of the credit he's due in WWE. You could also make the argument for China because China made him must-see again because she was brought in as a heater, but she would go on and become so much more. And I don't think you could ever tell the story of Triple H without China. Absolutely. And there's another WWF faction that turns up next that you can't really tell the story of without China because, and I'm not going to dive too much into it because this isn't a DX show, this is a China show. And basically I'll I'll point out a few key dates. 20th of September, 1997, Shawn Michaels wins the European Championship with the help of China and Triple H. Now, Triple H and Shawn Michaels had been sort of thrown together in a tag team match before this. Then they sort of hung about for a few weeks. But on this occasion, Triple H walks away from the ring with one arm, round Sean and the other arm, round China, and Triple H says, this is the main event right here. This is the triple threat. It almost could have been called that, but then, I don't know, maybe ECW would have 
complained that gimmick infringement don't know when the triple threat existed in ecw so it might have been timeline wise completely wrong wrong but on the 13th of october 1997 after comments from bret hart we see i think the hart foundation in the ring when they're interrupted from backstage to a camera shot of Shawn michaels triple h rick rude and china and in that promo i think it's Shawn michaels that says everyone calls us degenerates degeneration x is that us and it's a very key moment. I think it's quite forgotten about, but essentially mm-hmm. this is the formation of D-Generation X, the original incarnation of D-Generation X, which featured those four. It's interesting because I think Shawn Michaels brought Rick Rude down to the ring in a match with The Undertaker, and that was supposed to be his insurance policy. And basically these four people sort of came together quite nicely. And in every shot that you had of DX in these early days, China was always a main part of it, and she became very much the the sort of enforcer. She is the Arn Anderson of this group, if you will, and she was a, a huge, huge part of that that early formation of the group. This sort of would go on for about a year of her being the tough person of the group. Now, in August '98, after DX has you know been going for a while right now, and we're pretty much into the Attitude Era in full at this point, there's a key moment that I wanted to talk to you about which is kind of hard to watch. And it's actually a really awful storyline. But it's the 24th of August, 1998, when The Rock tries to force China to kiss Mark Henry. Oh, yeah. But this, oh. is, this is so depressing and creepy to watch back now, let me tell you. And I'm not going to tell you to watch this. But the reason that this is so important is that it leads to a couple of very important things. First of all, it leads to like a, a feud almost of Mark Henry being obsessed with China and it gives her sort of a spotlight of her own. But on the 14th of September, 1998, it leads to China's debut WWF match, a two-on-one handicap match alongside X-Pac versus Mark Henry. Now they did lose, which is sad, <laughs> but this was her first match against Mark Henry. Stuff, you know, sort of continued around this time. We had the DX split where DX were supposedly hypothetically in the ring going to announce their split. It led to Triple H and all of the guys attempting to get their arses out to which China China gets involved, speaks for the first time and says, I'll give them the DX split and China gets her arse out instead. It's again, not the arse bit. That's not particularly significant, but all of a sudden China has a voice and it's very, very interesting. The most significant moment in China's career up to this point occurs on the 11th of January, 1999, when she wins the Corporation versus DX Rumble. This is huge. She eliminates Vince McMahon last after Vince thinks that he's won the Corporate Rumble. I think it was for the last spot in the actual Royal Rumble. The guys are nodding, so I know I've got that bit right. She becomes the first woman to win the main event on Raw, which I think is a very key detail. And then, of course, I think less than two weeks later, she becomes the first woman in the Royal Rumble match. And tying up that awful, awful storyline from a few months before, she eliminates Mark Henry in the match, the first woman ever to feature in and eliminate a man in a Royal Rumble match. Sadly, next night leads to her turning on Triple H, joining the corporation, and amongst that, she has a match with Kane against Triple H and X-Pac at St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So yes, her ending of DX isn't great. There's a lot of things going on. Yeah. But I thought I'd put it to you guys. China, DX, intrinsically linked, I do believe. Because I think China was part of both eras of DX. But what did you think of China in those early forms of DX? 
think it's a testament to how badly NWO were booked that no one ever talks about the 47 breakups and back togethers of DX. They're like the wet, wet, wet of WWF. <laughs> <laughs> DX couldn't have became a thing without China because Triple H would not have become a, a must-see talent. People would have not stopped caring, sorry, not started caring that Triple H was low down the card. He would then not have been able to get back up to a point where they could put him with Shawn Michaels, obviously backstage politics and that, he might have been there anyway, but, you know, realistically, and for the crowd to buy into it. Although she's not speaking in these things, like when they're making any endos towards her, like it's this stone-faced bodyguard who occasionally will crack a wee smile and that's when, you know, like, right, she's in on the joke. Because sometimes the early stuff, it did border on, it's a bit sexist, is it not? And, you know... A lot of the stuff hasn't aged well, you know, 20-odd years later. Mm. But, like, when she cracked a wee smile or when she just gave a wee wink towards Triple H and Sean, you're like, yeah, okay, okay. Her standing as the bodyguard and keeping a straight face is DX hijack Raw and play strip poker in the middle of the ring. It's just such an underrated moment where she is just straight-faced, arms folded, sorry, no, the nightmare, private game. And yet, not meaning to, but she plays a massive part in the McMahon-Austin feud as well, because McMahon says if he didn't win the corporate rumble, because Austin says he was going to come in at number one, he would be one of the first two in the ring if he didn't win the rumble. And it was all meant to be, you know, rigged so that he couldn't lose. And then it was like, hold on a minute, you said it's DXB, the corporation, you forgot about China. And she just comes out and throws him in his arse. And she plays a part in this whole Austin-McMahon feud. So... Not only in DX, but in the Attitude Era as a whole, she's so intrinsically linked that you can't tell the story of the best period in wrestling history without talking about China. That is the clip. That is the sentence we will clip up for the advert for this show. You're absolutely right. You, you absolutely can't tell the Attitude Era story without her. I think that's so significant. Andy, do you know what else is big about this as well? Is This is the coolest wrestling faction of all time from the WWF, but it had a woman in it. Like, the NWO didn't have a woman at this point mm-hmm. anyway, and not a, one that would absolutely beat the shit out of you either. How significant do you think her role was? And looking back in the much better age that we live in now, I bet it was hugely inspiring to a lot of young females as well to have a woman in DX. Yeah, because I remember it's like I had, like, female cousins and that, and, and they were like, oh, I don't like wrestling ball, but I like China. Like, like she stood out, considering it was like, I don't know a woman that's got that physique. But it was still like she was still a, a role model to people who didn't even really watch wrestling. But again, like talking about like her staying power and that, it's like again, she was one of the founding members of D Generation X, but nobody remembers Rick Rude being there. Like, fair enough, he was only in it five minutes. But it's like she just stood out considering again, she didn't really say much. She just had this presence about her. As Ross said, it's like you can't think of all these important moments in the early attitude era without China being a part of it. You've actually just reminded me of a hugely significant moment. See the first match that Triple H and Shawn Michaels have together where they're just sort of put together in a match against, I think it's Undertaker and someone else. But one of the the best things about her gimmick was she constantly kept a straight face. Triple H and China come to the ring first and then Shawn Michaels comes out with all of his bells and whistles and basically does a striptease on China in the ring and she doesn't even blink for a second she just stands there arms folded it's brilliant I love it Scott talk to me about this because I think we can essentially consider the early DX to be three people because I think I'm reading here that 
Rick Rude was gone a month after DX started, but obviously the three-person DX run went on for quite a lot longer. How important was it just having these three, Sean, Triple H, and China, and how, how sort of big a deal was it to each of their individual careers? Yeah, I think the thing with Rick Rude being there is the only thing that's really memorable about this run, because he left, I think, because he was good friends with the Hart family, and so he left after Montreal. Yeah. And the only thing that's really remembered about his time in 97 is, like, they did a taped Raw, and then when that Raw aired, he showed up shaven uh, on Nitro the same night when he had the beard on Raw to show that Raw was taped and the moment, oh, what a difference a day makes and everything. Also, Sean was European and a champion for a while and then they did that joke match where they sort of thinks he's got one up on Sean and Triple H, but Sean basically lays down for Triple H to let him pin him and win the titles. But everything they had, I think it's Shayna holding the two belts. And I think that was a, a great image to see her with those two belts. And we know about her actually having matches, you know, there's a big debate the last few years about independent wrestling, the use of intergender wrestling, and how WWE won't allow it nowadays. But yet, they were doing it almost on a weekly basis with China competing against men. And it's weird, you mentioned the, the number of matches that she actually had in her run. seems a lot lower than I thought it would have been, probably because of how big a presence she was. I would have thought she wrestled way more often than she, she actually did. She was a weekly card, I think, in terms of female. Uh, female. I think she, the two main women at the time were her and Sable who was more of not the women's champion, but you think even China was way more important than Sable ever really was. And it's funny, the, the, the one with her and The Rock, where The Rock straight to nothing and forced her to kiss Mark Henry, it's weird that that came out of nowhere because that was the kind of thing they would do with female performers at that time, but it didn't seem something they would do with China because before that, she was a constant presence interfering to help Triple H and Sean. You know, you had Triple H's feud with Owen Hart where Slaughter sort of kept trying and failing to stay in capacity or like, Anchor her to the ring post or put her in a shark cage, but every time they found a way around it. And the thing with Mark Henry, weirdly, that feud begins the transformation of Mark Henry into sexual chocolate. So that's the origins of that character. And like, you've got something that's not remembered, but the Rock and Triple H's uh, ladder match in SummerSlam 98 is Mark Henry's in the Rock's corner, China's in Triple H's corner. And Mark Henry keeps coming around the ringside to get a chance. He keeps like creeping away from him. Oh, God. <laughs> What's well, good about uh, Vincent Mann, a lot of people don't really credit him and the things he does as a performer because when China comes out, like she comes out to the DX music and then after that she comes out to Triple H's music even after they, even for a month after they're not on screen together, which I thought was weird before she gets her music where you can't understand the bloody lyrics to. But he, even the boss knows that China will rip him in half. Mm-hmm. And this is after they've done the whole training vignettes of uh, Shane trying to get Vincent to shape. I'm chasing chickens, I'm lifting weights, shouting, I hate Austin, I hate him. <laughs> yeah, as Ross said, the DX breakup was a, a mess because you had China joined Triple H. Looks like they're going back to DX, but no, that means actually Triple H joined the corporation, they're kicking Kane out. And you have Billy Gunn and Road Dog, they're together, then they're not. Then they're going for different singles titles and then Swerve, they win the opposite titles right before WrestleMania 15. It was a real mess. I remember that UK video that Ross mentioned, I think there's one from No Mercy, the UK one, where China helps Shane McMahon retain the European Championship against X-Pac and so it was, it was a constant presence there. Like Then they start to tease that then to breaking up because when Triple H is about to become the game, Ian does a Sunday Heat interview basically requesting China not be there. It's not about China, it's about me being held back and about me finally stepping up. I think this is when you suddenly start, even though we said China really helped Triple H get to this point, this is where Triple H basically said, I don't need China more. I am now finally stepping into the main event. See um, the whole forcing Mark Henry to kiss her, so, sorry, forcing her to kiss Mark Henry. It came out of nowhere because she wasn't, you know, not to go back to the lyrics again, but she wasn't treated like a woman or a man. She was treated 
like a threat. You know, she was someone who gave Triple H the advantage no matter what. We talked about on the Raw After Mania show, one of my, my picks was the formation of the new DX, which was X-Pac, Road Dog, and Billy Gunn joining Triple H in China. If China's not there, then it's just Triple H with three new mates. We've seen this before where factions, it's maybe like one guy tries to restart it with a new group. If she wasn't there, you wouldn't have had DX. You wouldn't have had the career that X-Pac had or the multi-time tag champs that the New Age Outlaws went on to be. We wouldn't have had the gloriousness that was King Billy. There's so many careers that are intertwined with China's that the fact that WWE tried to write her out for so long you know, it is a bit of a tragedy. Wait, Russ, we talked about the uh, the King of the Ring 99. We did like a rebook show way back in 2018, I think it was. Looking back at it, that's basically the DX breakup playing out in the King of the Ring tournament because you've got Billy, Road Dog, China, X-Pac. <laughs> and you think China mm-hmm. bites Road Dog in the first round in one of the only matches that goes over 10 minutes in that whole tournament. And like China again, creating more history, first woman to enter the King of the Ring uh, tournament. And Road Dog, even though he's not known for his in-ring work, he helps make her look good in the doodle spot where she's, she's prone for doing low blows to help get the advantage. She tries to do it with Billy. She, they look, Road Dog, she sells her arm. Road Dog's got a cup, which is a story <laughs> we have talked about at the time, why they didn't do with Shinsuke and AJ in their streets. <laughs> and the next month, it's fully loaded. They ran a live match. It's Billy in China versus Xbox and Road Dog for the rights to the DX name. This actually leads us nicely into the next bit I wanted to talk about, and that is the you know, emergence of China as a solo wrestler. It kind of starts at St. Valentine's Day Massacre, even though she's in a tag match, but she tags with Kane against Triple H and X-Pac. And this this weird period of time where China's turned on Triple H, but they never really get a blow-off match. I saw that they fought twice on house shows in early 1999, but they never really got a blow-off match. It's the only thing that I'm really gutted that they never got to. But basically, January 1999, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and this starts a year of China just doing amazing stuff. She had the double turn at WrestleMania 15 where she rejoins Triple H and then they rejoin the corporation. It's all a bit strange. As you mentioned there, 6th of June, 99, she wins a King of the Ring qualifying match over Val Venus. She does lose in the first round, but she's in the tournament. And then in August, 1999, we get one of the greatest moments in wrestling history. She wins the number one contenders match for the WWF Championship over Undertaker and Triple H. For, I think, a week, she's the number one contender for the biggest title in wrestling. She defends it successfully against Triple H the next week before she loses it to Mankind later that night. It's insane. I think I've listened to other podcasts and maybe read on some articles that there was sort of smatterings that they might have actually put the belt on her around this time. Who knows if this could have happened? But let's just stop here and go around. Like, Do you think that... At this point, I don't know if it could have worked before or after, but at this point in 1999, Ross, do you think China could have been WWF champion? Well, listen, in 1999, the IC title changed hands 11 times. In 1999, The Rock and Mankind, it was Mankind wins it in Raw, Rock wins it back at the Rumble, Mankind wins it in Halftime Heat, they draw it at St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and then he wins it back. Austin wins it, Taker wins it, Austin wins it again. Then we've got it on Austin again. And it's just, the Attitude Era was such a time where the titles could change hands at any time. Mm. And in a world where they were still going for ratings against WCW, I am surprised they never, on Raw, pulled the trigger and gave China the world title. I think if she was still with WWF when the Alliance invasion started, 
We saw people like Kurt Angle and Chris Jericho get short run in the WCW title. If she would have been Team Alliance, if she was still there at the time, I 100% believe she would have got a WCW title run. But I am shocked that she never, ever got a WWF title run. Hey, same with you, Andy. Could it have been possible and could it have been credible? I think so. Well, when you say credible, because it wasn't like a few months after Vince McMahon won the title. So I yeah. think, yeah, credibility is quite argumentative what credibility means in the WWF at this time. Essentially, I think they could have done the Kane treatment or the Mankind treatment where I don't think Austin would have been the one to take the pin. And if she would have won, it would have been maybe triple threat. If it was her, Triple H and that, and then she could have pinned Triple H. And then the next night she could have dropped it to Triple H. So I think there could have been that. And then it could have been in the history books that, yeah, like they had a woman who was the World Wrestling Federation champion. And I think it would have been credible because she was, you know, she looked the part. Fair enough, she was still a bit like rusty in the ring and stuff. But, you know, she had a presence. The fans were behind her. Yeah, I think she could have made a good champion. I think if there was ever going to be a time to put the title on someone like China, it, it was then when she was very popular. You know, it's good that Andy brought up the uh, the whole thing with Vince. I would have brought, I was going to bring it up because like, it was a time where anything could happen. Although it did seem to be going between Austin, Rock, Mankind, hugely, then Triple H a lot after this, or Undertaker. And like the fact that she held on to it for two out of the four weeks, building that SummerSlam, each, I think really makes you think that they were concerned. I think Vince Russo, for all his faults, was one of the main people's champion right when the title, even though I don't think he was doing it for the idea of historical reasons, because as me and Andy talked about with Stephen, he doesn't see belts as really valuable. He think, considers them props, as we talked mm-hmm. about in the final year of WCW. If she did win the title, sometimes she probably would have lost it a week or so later, because like I think the main reason Vince won the title on SmackDown was to pop a rating, because SmackDown was still fairly new. But I think it would have been a good idea at least to try it, see what happened, because I don't think it would have done the company that much harm, but they were kind of at a, a point where they were coming off the higher power story where even that couldn't kill their momentum. So I don't think any, anything could stop the WWF at that time. I mean, when we talk about China, at first when she started talking, she wasn't the most charismatic speaker. She was very serious in her delivery. And so every time she tried to sound charismatic, it didn't always work. But she did have a good line when they announced the match. I think Sean, he's still the commissioner, announces take every trouble versus her. And Triple H is like, oh, but China, she's still a girl. She can't handle being in this match. And she grabs Mike, went, just a girl. She goes, try me, Triple H. And that was one of the few good lines I remember from China. I, I think as well, see, later on in 1999, when you've got the god-awful McMahon-Helmsley faction becomes a thing, DX essentially does become Triple H and pals. You know, it's Stephanie and Triple H with Stooges and X-Pac and Billy Gunn and Road Dog, And then obviously Billy Gunn ends up going away. China's not with DX from, I believe, after SummerSlam, she kind of goes her own way. It's kind of quietly, but not said that she's not with DX. And then they just completely go different ways. She's this inspirational character now. She's a woman mixing up in the man's world. And Triple H is the bastard who's going after the boss and, you know, doing anything he can to piss the boss off because he feels held down. Would it not have been better? You know, I love Mick Foley, but he had his two world title rings. Nobody really would complain if, you know, the one-day title reign of Mick Foley went elsewhere. You know, China wins it, and then Triple H costs her the title, or Triple H takes the title from her. Imagine how hated heel Triple H, because heel Triple H, 1999-2000, is so good. Imagine how much more heel he would get if he was the guy who cost or stole the title from the first-ever female Mm. WWF champion. Absolutely. And... Do you know what? The WWF Championship on China, we have to put that out of our heads for a little while because 
while she wins the number one contenders match for the WWF Championship at the start of August, at the end of August, she wins just as big an important match because she wins the number one contenders match for the Intercontinental Championship, this time beating Mr. Ass. That leads us to the good housekeeping match at No Mercy against Jeff Jarrett for the WWF Intercontinental Championship. Now, Jeff does initially win the match, but he uses the belt to hit China. And Teddy Long correctly (laughs) puts the fact that, no, you're only allowed to use household objects. You cannot use a title belt. And he restarts the match, leading to China winning the WWF Intercontinental Championship. Now, obviously, this isn't a great wrestling match. It's an absolute riot. China gets, like, is it cake or foam or something all over her? So the images of her holding up the belt afterwards, she looks a bit like she needs a wash. But it's still one of the most significant moments of the Attitude Era and one of the most significant moments of China's career. Now, that was in October 1999. In November 1999, I'm going to say something, guys. I think this is when her best match as a professional wrestler occurs. She defends the title successfully against Chris Jericho at Survivor Series. I watched this match for the very first time less than a week ago. I was so impressed with it. I, as a wrestling fan who, you know, started watching wrestling in 2000, the match that stands out in my head for China is always, of course, the match at X7. We'll get to that soon. Guys, hold your horses. But watching this match with Jericho at Survivor Series, she performs so well in this match. Spoilers for the finish. She finishes it with a top rope pedigree. I was just like, holy shit, that was amazing. (laughs) And she keeps the belt. Of course, she does sadly lose it to Jericho at Armageddon. A month later, I think she taps out to the walls of Jericho. But she has a phenomenal first run as IC champion. And what's that you're saying? Listeners who haven't heard of China before, First run, yes, she'd be back with the belt shortly afterwards. At the end of December, there's the double pin instant with Chris Jericho, and they become co-winners of the Intercontinental Championship. As Andy mentioned at the top of the show, this is sadly stricken from history, and this reign is only now recognized as Chris Jericho's. She loses it officially to him in January 2000, but it's a phenomenal moment in her singles career. She entered the Royal Rumble as well in January 2000, and while it doesn't have the fanfare and excitement of the previous year of her becoming the first female, she does eliminate Chris Jericho, so she does get a bit of her own back on him. What did you guys think of this period of time where she was basically just doing everything cool on her own what did you think of this period of her career yeah i think it was pretty good it goes to show she didn't need triple h as much as triple h needed her i know that when her and jericho first started sort of having matches together she was complaining about jericho being a bit too rough maybe that's probably why she pedigreed them from the top row because i can't imagine that being a nice fall to take <laughs> but no i think it's good for her and again, it's shown that she can keep up with the talent, especially the new talent, because obviously uh, Chris Jericho just came from WCW. It's a different style. The fact that, as you said, it's probably one of the best matches you've seen of hers is saying something that she can perform with an outside sort of talent and still make it look good. Ross, I'm sure you've watched these pay-per-views back. 2000 era WWF pay-per-view. That's that's like the godfather of wrestling pay-per-views. What did you think of this run? She had a lot of matches on pay-per-view where she looked amazing. Matches with Chris Jericho and Jeff Jarrett. What did you think? The Good Housekeeping match has one of my favourite commentary calls of all time where Jerry Lawler, who always supported the heels, is dumbfounded to why this match is restarting. And JR goes, 
Well, it's not a household item. And Jerry Lawler, as quick as a flash goes, it is in Jared's house, which is like an amazing point as well, because <laughs> I believe there's a guitar in the match and nothing said about that. Like, not every household has a guitar. <laughs> but we move on to the Jericho matches. When I properly started watching wrestling mid 2000s, I had a wee dabble in wrestling late 99, early 2000s. And my mum had got my grandfather to tape Armageddon 99 for me. And it sat in a cupboard because by the time it was taped and given to us, as you know, children do at that age, I'd moved on to like the next thing. It was like Pokemon or there was a new Power Rangers out or something. <laughs> I was I was moved on. So I seen this about six months later. It was the first time I'd seen China with the IC title. I was like, oh my God, she's got the IC title. And then Jericho just ruins it as he ruins most things. The matches with Jericho were great. The matches that involved Hardcore Holly, the Charisma Vacuum, not so much, but yeah, it's weird that they've stricken that title run from the record. It's like, it doesn't count as a co-championship run. Unfortunately for China, it was Chris Jericho. Yeah, I've, I've actually watched quite a lot of this run for another podcast, and it's weird. I look back and there's this run in the match, it's Ellie Good House match. I first found it on a compilation of uh, the best of the Intercontinental title DVD, and it's on there, and it's a great match. Like, oh, China's used everything but the, and she picks up a literal kitchen sink <laughs> to use as a weapon. And it may be fun for some ICW fans out there to go back and see the, these Good House matches go all the way back to 1999, and this moment where. China attacks Jeff Jarrett and then takes his gear off, literally his pants off, and then she puts them on the whole metaphor of the woman wears the pants. Also, the way she gets the Intercontinental title show originally is that Billy Gunn sees a sign-up sheet to sign up for an Intercontinental title match. He says, I'm going to go get a pen. And while he leaves, China pulls out a pen and signs her own name on the contract. And Jarrett, by the way, I watched this rerun of him being a misogynist. No, all women should be barefoot and pregnant and all that. His one is weirdly more entertaining than you think because he turns it up to cartoonish levels probably because he knows he's leaving. Deborah's talking to a makeup woman and Deborah's taking too long she's met a company Jarrett feed match. So he grabs this makeup woman and puts her in a figure four just for no reason and then Jarrett leaves. Miss Kitty was one of, one of his valleys as well. And then the next day on Raw she just starts dressing like China where has black hair now. She's China's mini-me basically. And they go around and then the matches with Jericho are some of our best matches. I think China is as good as whoever she's in the ring with. And so Jarrett and Jericho are the perfect people to where I go with. But over the course of her run with Jericho, you can tell the fans are starting to cheer Jericho more because Jarrett was easily despisable, where Jericho is just so much more charismatic. And like the Survivor Series match, I don't think it's as good as Armageddon. I prefer the Armageddon one, but the Survivor Series, Jericho says, if I lose to a woman, I'll get a sex change. And Jericho won't shut the fuck up about it during the match. And then the next night, China comes out with a tiny pair of scissors to help Jericho with his sex change. And so Jericho retaliates by tying China to a chair and smashing her thumb in with a hammer. There's a lot of great storylines from this era, but there's also a lot of really not great ones. But we roll in to 2000 proper, as in February 2000, she defeats Kurt Angle by DQ for the European Championship on SmackDown. Sadly, doesn't win the belt, but another check in the box. She's now been the first woman to compete for the European Championship. And around this time, She's sort of hanging out with Chris Jericho. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. They had some good matches. In April 2000, Eddie sort of, Eddie Guerrero, I should say, I don't know him on first name terms, starts (laughs) making advances towards China. It begins around WrestleMania 2000. Thankfully, in a tag match with Too Cool against the Radicals, China pins Eddie. And that should be the end of that, right? Wrong. The next night on Raw, 
she turns on Chris Jericho in his match with Eddie Guerrero and helps him win the European Championship, thus starting potentially the best era of both wrestlers' careers. Eddie Guerrero's Latino Heat era proper begins now with him alongside China. You can sort of say that China has, is his valet, but I like to also sort of think of them as a fully-fledged tag team. On the 9th of May that year, she competes against Dean Malenko for the WWF Light Heavyweight Championship, Tick. On the 23rd of May that year, she defeats Edge and Christian alongside Eddie for the Tag Team Championships, again by DQ, but still, Tick. She defeats the Godfather in a King of the Ring qualifying match. She, of course, loses to Eddie Guerrero in the first round in that phenomenal match where Eddie sort of tricks China into losing. And then on the 27th of August, again, another highlight of this first run and a match which is so vivid in my memory, she wins the WWF Intercontinental Championship for a third time. This time in a tag match, her and Eddie taking on Val Venus and Trish Stratus. Whoever gets the pin wins the belt and she wins it by pinning Trish. So vividly, I think one of the, the, my earliest wrestling memories, Val Venus and Trish being in the locker room, him saying something along, along the lines of, you helped me win this belt, but you should have helped me lose it. She loses that belt to Eddie Guerrero as well eight days later. You know, fractions beginning to appear in the Latino Heat connection. And losing the belt to Eddie Guerrero eight days later finally ends this run of China as Intercontinental Champion. I'm calling it three reigns, and that is a total of 84 days as champion. That doesn't sound that long, but that's longer than Roddy Piper, AJ Styles, Kurt Angle, Bobby Lashley, Daniel Bryan, and my own personal heartthrob, CM Punk. And I just think that's so impressive. We'll wrap up this section by pointing out that in October 2000 is when she catches Eddie in the shower with his hose, including <laughs> Victoria. Latino Heat and China eventually break up. But, oh man, February to October 2000, just a phenomenal run of television together. Scott, what did you think of this pairing? I don't know, like looking back on it, I just have such fun memories. Yeah, for much of this run, Eddie's the European champion. I don't know if Ross has mentioned, but Eddie Guerrero is his favourite European champion. I might mention that once or twice, a fair retro review. I've only found this out recently while doing research for the show. Yeah, Eddie tricks China into a roll-up during their King of the Ring match together and gets her to forgive him by buying her a puppy. <laughs> and she forgives him. And it does get to a weird, like, when Eddie starts turning heel and then winning the IC title from her while he's pretending to comfort her. You know, there's a weird thing where every time he does something bad, he manages to get her to forgive him. And it's a bit uh, kind of sketchy when you really look at it. And then eventually he snaps and then they go off in their separate ways. But I think they really did a smart way of like incorporating the, the playboy thing because they would use that to further her feud with Eddie. And then but it was a really good partnership because this is the first time China really showed some personality. You know, they arrived from Eddie's prom right to backlash for his match with S.A. Rios. Kind of the first time Eddie would come out in a car, which would become his real gimmick when he comes out in the lowriders. So I think it was really good for both of them because Eddie, as part of the Radicals, was really struggling to show any personality, even though he was clearly the most charismatic of the four. And so I think it was good for both of them to finally, from a character perspective, show what they could truly do. Ross, how important do you think China was to Eddie's character? I know I asked you the same thing about Triple H earlier, but how important do you think China was to Eddie? Well, you know, breaking news that Eddie Guerrero is my favourite European champion. Um, as Scott mentioned the Radicals coming in. The Radicals were booked horrendously as soon as they came in. They should never have lost to anyone. You know, they're getting beat off Tukul and Rikishi on a weekly basis. The sort of thing is, Eddie had an interest in her. But China was like against it. She thought he was like using her. 
sort of playing into that past with a questionable Mark Henry angle. You know, the, the whole build-up, the radicals going, you better stay focused here. And he's like, I'm focused, I'm focused. Too cool just being like, look, we've got your back, China. We're not going to let anyone have a go at you. So, like, again, going back to the song, she wasn't treated like a woman or a man here. But, like, Eddie did have a genuine interest in her. She wasn't treated as some sort of, you know, sideshow or just thrown into the women role. It was the guy chasing her and her going, no, you're not good enough for me. And I thought that was quite an important factor compared to the Mark Henry storyline later on. The storyline with Jericho, obviously Jericho has made clear he was never a fan of it. He thought once the Rumble match happened, it was over. But then all of a sudden she's his manager. And then she helped Eddie become my favourite European champion. She's cost Jericho the title the next night on Raw. Eddie Guerrero is so charismatic, you know, there's no getting around that. He just exudes charisma. But in WWE, they were determined to hide that. See, when he was putting this mid-card tag team, it was like his charisma rubbed off on China. You could tell she was enjoying it and he was enjoying it. Like Vicky Guerrero's came out and said, like, nothing ever went on between China and Eddie. But you could just tell they had such a love for each other because it was the start of Eddie's WWE career. It was probably kickstart to it. And it gave her something new. She was treated as someone who could be seen as desirable. She also leads to the split of the radicals. So thank God for China. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll again see a throwback to Marlena versus China. Terry Reynolds is Perry Santon's manager going up against China and Eddie Guerrero for the European title. She mixes it up a bit with Lita as S.A. Rios and Eddie Guerrero have an absolute banger of a match at Backlash 2000. Andy, you've become a sort of, would this be legit question guy so another one after talking about her potentially being wwf champion earlier do you think it could have been legit that eddie and china could have been tag team champions to be fair actually that's not a bad shout i never even uh, give that a thought see i feel like if they would have put them together a year before you could have probably seen them as a tag team champions whereas at that point you had the hardys dudleys edge and christian too cool there were just so many top tier that it was good that they managed to put them into the intercontinental title picture and again it was like as far as I remember, it was only supposed to be a short term sort of them partnering up and they were supposed to be heels, but just that natural charisma of both of them made the story work better and then they became faces eventually. And But no, I don't know. I, I think a different time they could have been legit champions, but I don't think in the 2000s because there was just too much talent and it's great that they managed to stand out in the 2000s when there was so much going on. It's funny you say that about talent. So I checked it. It was SmackDown on the 25th of May, 2000. China and Eddie opened the card against Edge and Christian for the belts. They win, but it's by DQ, so nothing changes hands. But on the same card, right, Farouk and Bradshaw, Matt and Jeff, S.A. Rios and Lita, doesn't really count, but sort of the same. The Dudleys, too cool. DX, TNA, <laughs> Bill Buchanan and the boss man, Al Snow and Steve Blackman. So... Yes, the tag team scene was a little bit busy at this point. Main evented by Shane versus The Undertaker. I should point that out if that's a SmackDown to watch. The tag title division was so stacked at the time. You know, you've APA, only three-time champions. Too Cool, I believe, won the belt twice. And then that's it. Edge, Christian, Matt, Jeff and the Dudleys sort of just overshadowed that. And then obviously in WWE, as you always have, there's the occasions where it would be someone would win the title. An odd couple team would win the title on Monday but lose them on Thursday on SmackDown. Rock and Undertaker spring to mind there. Do you know what? Like, I'm doing this whole booking it thing in my head, and I was like, China could have been WWF champion. China could have been tag team champion. But do you know what? At this point, guys, we have to about turn because there's one thing that we have missed. There's one division that we've missed. 
She's fought for the light heavyweight title. She's fought for the European title. She's fought for the tag title. And she was in the conversation for the WWF title. She's won the IC belt three times. So there's this one locker room in a WWF building that are all absolutely shiting themselves. Because at this point, she turns her attention to the women's division. It sort of starts off around China going up against right to censor. Was that, I do believe that was Playboy related. Yeah, I mean, it was. my memory is, is terrible. I can't remember what I had for dinner yesterday. China versus oh. the right to censor leads to a match, or, or was it a spot, I think, on Raw, where the right to censor give China the spike pile driver and injure her neck. Now, it looks like she's going to be on the shelf for a little while, but against, I think, best wishes, she competes in a match against Ivory for the women's title now in this match she quite famously does a handspring back elbow and re-injures her neck and this time you're like oh god she's done she comes back very quickly i think two weeks and on the first of april 2001 20 years ago this week she competes against ivory at wrestlemania x7 for the women's championship she absolutely destroys ivory it's I think it's up there with the most iconic wrestling match of its time. And all of a sudden, China is your WWF women's champion. She tears through the roster over the course of, I think, a matter of weeks. On the 12th of April, two weeks later, she beats Ivory in a rematch. A week later, she beats Molly Holly. A couple of weeks later, she beats Trish Stratus. And she gets on the mic and says, I need more competition. On the 20th of May, it all comes to a crashing halt because she gets her match against probably the best female wrestler in the company besides her at this point. She has her WWF women's title match with Lita. She's got an iconic entrance. She comes out in this just phenomenal, like sort of peacock outfit type thing. She beats Lita for the belt. I think they do embrace at the end of the match as well. And you wouldn't have thunk it at the time, but that is sadly her final appearance in the WWF. It's... A massive, massive shame. But she goes out on top. China ends her WWF career as women's champion. But yeah, let's talk about it, guys. What did you think of China's run in the women's division? It was brief. Let's face it, it was a matter of months. But mm. Scott, how fondly do you remember this period of China's career? I think we took me and Ross did have a tape of uh, WrestleMania X7. And without that tape, I wouldn't have known she even got in the women's division. There's an interview from 1999, I think it's like promoting WrestleMania 15. There's Sable, who's there as the champion, China, and there's a third woman wrestler there. I'll, I'll say Perry, I don't know who it was. Sable is there all done up in black. She's got her sunglasses on indoors. Typical, I've got a bit of success, I'm up my own arse now. Look, there's no exchange <laughs> between her and when the interviewer says to China, oh, you know, you don't really compete with the one you mostly mix up with the men. Like, why have you never went after the women's title? And Sable basically butts in and basically says, like, yeah, you think you're too good to compete with the women? And she just responds, like, no, because if I competed in the women's division, there would be no believable way that I wouldn't take that title from you in two seconds. You can tell Sable really doesn't like China and the feeling is mutual. And then so she finally goes in the women's division. I think it was a case of we don't have anything for China or the women's division right now, so we might as well finally put them together. And she does this thing with the RTC. She thinks she fights Val Venus Armageddon and loses because of RTC interference. Then they do the net break angle. And what's weird about it, they have a match with Ivory and China at the Royal Rumble where China does the handspring elbow. And I can't watch that back, not because it looks bad, but like, because you know China's not injured. You could have done a better way of having her sell the net because she just does a dramatic, 
I'll time falling, like first year <laughs> drama student level acting when she sells it, you know, you have all these paramedics trying to carry her away until then she comes out in the net base. You have China, she has an interview with a net base on, and then China the next week parodies it, trying to mock her, and then they sign the whole home harmless agreement thing for the ranch at WrestleMania. If you remember listening to the Mania review we did, we don't really talk about the match because as a match, there's nothing really to say about it other than the fact that Ivory obviously knows China is more healthier than she realised and is clinging to the women's title, doesn't want a fight. And Che comes out in a, this outfit reminiscent, and I don't know how many people will get this reference of uh, Delphine, I believe she's called from the 95 Power Rangers movie. I want to make that joke on the Mania X7 review, I just couldn't remember the character's name until now. <laughs> But it does the match, and yeah, she basically squashes Ivory, which when you think about it, it's probably what should have happened when you really think about it, and Ivory deserves more credit than she got enough for helping put Shine over. The, and then, yeah, the match with Lita really should be talked about a lot more than it actually is, and then that ends up being her final like farewell. And then what's weird is not only does she disappear with no comment, the women's title does as well. And it's not until the lead-up to Savarity's with the big six-pack challenge where Trish wins her first women's title that it's ever mentioned again, and you can clearly tell that she left on bad terms because I think for a while Debbie may have considered getting rid of the title altogether because, you know, they've done that before where, like, 95, Medusa throws the title in the bin. They don't bring the belt back till like, 98 when Jacqueline and Sable are in. So, you know, I think they were probably considering not bringing the title back, but then they realised, like, well, we've got this whole new crop of women coming in from the Alliance. We've got Trish, we've got Lita. Why don't we just bring the title back and not mention who we had before? And it is sad you would expect her to get a much bigger send-off and... It would be nice to see what ha- happened if she was involved in the invasion. Andy, that's a good point. Like, it's difficult because I think there was a lot of contract disputes. There's also the argument that once you've done Lita, like, let's reword that sentence. Once you have defeated Lita in a wrestling match, where do you go with China? I don't, I don't know what they even could have done with her next. Well, that's the thing, though. Like, she was obviously the success of the Playboy appearance because they milked that for longer than they needed to. And she was in, like, Third Rock from the Sun... You know, she was not just a figure in the WWF. She sort of was in the pop culture. People knew her. So I think she was just doing well. But obviously, I think there's that her backstage attitude. Because I think as well, if I'm not 100% accurate, is that she felt it was a step down to start facing the woman. Like, she didn't really enjoy having to step down and start facing women for the women's championship. So obviously, and then the relationship between her and Triple H backstage caused a lot of rumblings that... It was it easier to push her out than to keep her, even though she didn't do anything wrong, really. There's also rumours that like that the start of Triple H's relationship with Stephanie had some overlap with the ending of his relationship with China and the idea of China finding out and maybe some members of the McMahon family knew about the start of Triple H's mm-hmm. relationship and purposely didn't tell her. China did later say and later be like she was angry at the time, which she said she later thought back on and saw how in love the two were. But I think at the time she didn't like like being in the women's division then plus finding out about Triple H and Stephanie, I think she just didn't want to be there anymore. And like you said, for them, it was easier to let her go. And Ross, I know that you hold WrestleMania X7 in as high regard as I do. We've spoken about that for approximately 90 minutes in a previous episode. Does China's match with Ivory hold up on that card? I think with matches like Edge and Christian, the Hardys and the Dudleys and the ladder match, so much goes on. So much is made of the Austin heel turn at the end of Austin Rock. But squash matches are fun at a time. When the person getting squashed is someone who's done a horrendous deed. You know what I mean? When when it's someone who really deserves to get their head kicked in, when it's a cowardly heel. We saw this in recent years with Stephanie McMahon. She would berate the roster for a year. No one could get her hands on her, yet at WrestleMania, she'd get speared, she'd get put through a table. 
yeah, the match holds up because sometimes seeing someone who's an utterly despicable character getting beat up by this over as anything, she's still over as hell at this point. The crowd are going mental for the entrance. But yeah, we, we talked about China at this time. She was so famous. She was on Pacific Blue, Third Rock from the Sun, and Whose Line Is It Anyway? And if you don't know those references, you're far too young. These were like massive staples in the 90s. Like, mm-hmm. And she was in a lot of um, direct-to-VHS films at the time. You know, just sort of like cheesy action movies trying to cash in on the last of the action boom from the Stallone and Schwarzenegger era. So, yeah, she was technically the first film star. You know, it might not have been big films, but she went out. She had such a crossover appeal. And obviously we mentioned the Playboy thing. I think the women's division thing could have lasted longer. But I think having a run through week by week China is sort of like the way people used to talk about the big show or certainly how Andre the Giant used to be used. That's an attraction. You can't have that every week. It loses the attraction feel if she's wrestling every week. And, you know, oh, there's no believable way. Someone like a Trish or Alita could have rolled her up, maybe. You know, that could have been an all right, oh, you got me this time, you won't get me next time sort of thing. You know, ECW was done at the time. It's a shame they couldn't get Jazz in for when China was still there because she made her debut in the six-pack challenge at Survivor Series later that year. It would have been good to see her going up against Jazz because Jazz was sort of that gimmick in ECW. She was mixing up with the guys there and she was in like really extreme stipulation matches in ECW. She was, you know, hitting guys with chairs, taking chair shots and getting put through tables. So it would have been good to see the two of them mix up. But I think it was a product of its time, the China sort of renegotiation thing. They didn't want to give a woman as much money as they were giving a man even though she was a massive crossover star. You know, you look at people like Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair now, they're on quite a bit of money because they've become massive crossover stars. I don't think they wanted China on more money than some of the men. I think they might have, some of the men would have been upset that a woman was on more money than her. Obviously, again, a product of its time. And also the women's division itself, it wasn't quite what it was yet. You know, they made the mistake of having her run through the division in a week. A lot of things led to her departure that if it was happening, if the China character was in 2021, I don't think WWE would have made the mistake of letting her slip through her fingertips. I certainly don't think, not even 2021, had it been 1999 when WCW was still a threat and ECW was still a thing, I don't think they would have let her go. But I think women weren't seen as equal to men in contract disputes. The women's division was non-existent and WWE had no competition. Sadly, that's the end of our run of China's WWF career, but it's not the end of her run as a wrestler. As in September 2002, she would pop back up in the world of wrestling for 10 nights of tag matches and New Japan Pro Wrestling. Absolutely mental. Fighting guys every single night. And I picked out some of the highlights just for you. On the 6th of September, she fights Jushin Thunder Liger and Yuji Nagata phenomenal names in the world of Japanese wrestling, some of which are still wrestling today. On the 7th of September, she fought the current bookers, I do believe, Gedo and Jado, Scott? Gedo and Gedo, yeah. Thank you. Uh, 11th of September, she fights in a tag match against Minoru Tanaka. And on the 13th of September, she fights actual Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kenzo Suzuki. Just, I mean, it only lasted for a little short while, but just a phenomenal run of matches. And where does she go next? On the 14th of October that year, she fights her first singles match. Oh, who do we throw in against? Some sort of New Japan jobber? Masahiro Chono, one of the most famous New Japan pro wrestlers of all time. They have this brilliant 
14 minute match. I watched it this week. It's an amazing effort. And what is really great about it is afterwards, China does this promo where she's just like, he's supposed to be the best guy you've got. I almost beat him. What does that tell you about how great I am? And then she says that they're going to have a rematch where she's going to win, which sadly doesn't materialize. Later that month, she competes for the IWGP tag team titles. I understand in 2002, New Japan wasn't quite the name that it is today, but fighting alongside the great Kabuki, she took on Hiroshi Tenzan and Masahiro Chono. Huge significance of this. This is a woman. This is China fighting for the IWGP tag team titles. And the 15th of December, she has her final New Japan match where she teams with Masahiro Chono to defeat the Makai Club, I think they're called. But again, guys, we're not done with her wrestling career just yet because 10 years ago, next month, May 2011, where does she turn up? TNA as Kurt Angle's business partner. She throws Jeff Jarrett over the top rope and chokes out Karen Angle or J- Karen Jarrett. She would have been at that time. It's phenomenal. A little tiny piece of crossover history that you have to all go away and watch. This leads to a match, her final match as a wrestler, 15th of May, 2011, almost 10 years to the day. She tags with Kurt Angle to defeat Jeff and Karen Jarrett. Now, the sad ending to this is that she was supposed to come in to TNA as a you know proper contracted wrestler. Bruce Pritchard talks about on his Something to Wrestle With podcast that they couldn't work out a deal. China was looking for 99-2000 WWF money, which obviously 2011 TNA cannot afford. Bruce was quite hostile towards her. I'm sure they were hostile towards each other because China was working through an agent and that just wasn't how they did things in TNA. Bruce just wanted to sit down and talk to China about the deal. Sadly, it never materialized and China's official last wrestling match took place in May 2011. Now, we have talked a lot about Japanese wrestling there and thankfully, we have a man on this show who knows a lot about Japanese wrestling. Andy Mitchell. No, I'm kidding on. <laughs> um, Scott, I don't know if you've watched any of these matches, but uh, China's run in New Japan. I knew she did a pop up in Japan, just didn't realize the kind of caliber of wrestlers that she fought, you know. That's your tone, especially in this era of his career, this later heel run he was going on, where he dressed all in black and wore sunglasses. Matrix run. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know much about Japan in this era, but I do know that this was like the biggest thing going. Yeah, like he won the G1 more times than anybody, he won it five times. Seeing those two go at it, and then him teaming with uh, Tenzan to face her in a tag match for the titles because Tenzan is one of the most decorated tag team wrestlers. He and Satoshi Kojima held the record for the most IWGP title wins at six, up until recently, where God uh, Haku's sons both broke the record with seven. So it's amazing the kind of people she mixed up with. I was surprised that she fought so many men because, from what I've seen of Japan, you know, there's all these different promotions you've got mainly male promotions like New Japan, like Noah, All Japan. And then you got stardom, the Joshi promotions. China, if she wanted to wrestle one, which I don't think she clearly did, if she wanted to, she could have went to one of these All Japan women's wrestling or stardom. She could have dominated that mm-hmm. company for, for years and years, been the top gaijin wrestler there. It made a good career for herself. I don't think she really wanted to. And then, yeah, I remember finding out, I was kind of going away from TNA at the time. I was kind of poking in and poking out of TNA at the same. I think the reason they couldn't pay her the money she wanted to is they still had Hulk Hogan at that time. And she debuted her one-line matches on pay-per-view. At the pay-per-view, where numbers don't lie, ironically against <laughs> Jeff Jarrett, who you know we come back to there too. One of our best matches probably against Jeff Jarrett, that good housekeeping match. And uh, Andy and Ross, I know this is post WWE. I think TNA maybe more so, but I don't think her Japan run was particularly like I didn't know about it until way, way, way after the fact. 
it's obviously not as significant, but how important is it, do you think, that a woman like China was able to go and compete with these huge names in Japan? Essentially, it goes to show that she was trying to sort of her feet into different territories and stuff like that. Although it didn't probably work out, it could have, if she had maybe stuck in there for a few matches more or something like that, you never know. She, she might have got brought back to WWE in open arms, who knows? It's phenomenal that she could go out somewhere else and still be seen as a star. She sort of just sort of just ran through everyone, as you mentioned, Chris. She was, you know, almost beat their top guy, sort of kind of like nineteen ninety nine, where she was almost beating Stone Cold, she was almost beating the Rock. You know, it's New Japan saw an opportunity. She saw an opportunity and they both worked pretty well together. I don't know if money maybe got in the way or maybe she got more offers back in America to do T V shows and what have you. I didn't know she was in New Japan until we put out the script for this show and I had to go look up some of the matches and obviously you mentioned some of the matches. Thank God you're hosting this because I would have butchered those names, so fair play <laughs> to you. And then our TNA run, I believe one of the things that held it back was that she still wanted to have an adult film career and if TNA weren't willing to basically cover the loss she would take if she wasn't doing an adult film career, then she was going to go the other way. And TNA basically went, oh, it's us or them. And it was like, TNA tried to play this as if it was their decision. Like, no, China made it clear, pay me the money I'm going to lose or I'm going to go back to my old career. I don't need to be here. It's nice that she teamed with a wrestling legend like Kurt Angle. It's nice that someone like Karen Jarrett got her comeuppance. And it's nice that, you know, history repeated itself and she got in the ring and mixed up with Jeff Jarrett again. It is nice that that's our sort of final match, but I don't like the fact that it was sort of a wee bit bitchy on TNA's part, that, you know, they were willing to pay Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair WCW 2000 money, but they weren't willing to pay China, who could have been... Imagine China coming back from such a big break and wrestling, you know, doing what Tessa Blanchard did 10 years later. Mm-hmm. took 10 years for someone like Tessa Blanchard to come in and do what China was doing in 2011, TNA could have been so far ahead of the curve and just, as so often happens with that company, they shot themselves in the foot. And that's the end of our wrestling journey. And sadly, the story of China doesn't end on a particularly happy note. China actually spent the last three years of her life living in Japan, where she was teaching English. And she spoke on Vince Russo's podcast. We mentioned Vince a bit earlier, and her and Vince were really quite close. Like, Vince called her up one day and was just like, I think you should come on my podcast, and you should definitely go away and watch this on YouTube. She seems well in the show. She seems quite lucid. She talks about having previous addiction issues, and she talks about just wanting to get away from the Western life for a little bit. She came back to the US at some point around this time, And on the Steve Austin podcast in February 2015, Steve Austin spoke to Triple H, and I'm sure everyone knows that Triple H made some interesting comments with regards to China being inducted into the Hall of Fame and why it might be a bit difficult. Now, he used the example of his eight-year-old daughter saying young kids wouldn't know who China was and they'd end up Googling her. And Triple H then implied that that would bring up unsuitable things that WWE didn't want to associate themselves with, a.k.a. China's post-WWE adult film career. Now, at the time, China replied to this on Twitter saying, hey, I mean, maybe you could put me in with DX. Clearly willing and able to ignore this post-WWE career in order to celebrate this moment with wrestling fans that she rightly deserved. But sadly, in 
her lifetime, this never materialized. And five years ago, this month, on April 17th, 2016, just 46 years old, Joni Lauder was found dead at her home due to an accidental overdose. Now, eventually, WWE got their act together, and in February 2019, almost four years to the day from Triple H's comments, China was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame as part of DX, getting the rightful honor she deserves. I'm sure everyone's seen the speech. Triple H does pay special mention to her. And he actually took the opportunity around this time to sort of renege on his previous comments, saying she absolutely 100% deserves to be in the Hall of Fame and should probably be in more than once as a group, but individually as well. It's a great thing, very deserving. So that is where our conversation with China comes to the end. I thought I'd give you guys the opportunity to sort of sum up everything we've said about her and as well the important question does she deserve to be in the hall of fame twice andy i'll start with you i think my vote on this is probably quite obvious but what do you think no i do think she deserves to be in it twice after our wwe run in the adult films and stuff it is a bit sort of messy and maybe wwe was worried if they brought her in to the hall of fame while she was still alive maybe she may have said something about her relationship with triple h that maybe didn't want to hear so i feel like it's a safe bet but no she does deserve i'm trying to think of examples of people in wrestling who well there's wrestlers who weren't even in the wwe who are in the hall of fame and it's like although she wasn't like the stone cold of the actual era she was still a big part of it that she does deserve to be in there on her own and again she was a, a role model for women during the time as well and kind of opened doors for certain sort of wrestlers to come into the wwf and as well as wrestling with her personality well not her personality but her sort of aura and her sort of mystique yeah i definitely think she deserves to go in by herself uh, it was good that she got to go in with dx first so that we can now say she is a hall of famer her twitter account is still active but it's her family that, that run it and they've been using that to kind of start this whole campaign that to get china her own like solo induction when you think of it when you've been going through her career the amount of first that she did like first female ic champion considered to be WAF champion first woman to compete in king of the ring and the women's rumble and just the idea if she was still alive today i imagine her coming out number 30 the first ever women's rumble if that could have happened so all the things that she did and like we talk about females in the attitude era i think she stands out more than anyone she stands like all these like images you see of people who are not worthy of the attitude era her image is always there in some way or another and so it's important that she went in with dx i think first because she was a founding member of the group but down the line eventually she will go in with them because i think debbie does like to do at least one female inductee a year and they are starting to uh, run out of noteworthy like female members you know, there's argument every year, like, this person didn't, didn't do as much as this person, but eventually she will go in, I think, sometime in the next couple of years. Yeah, Ross, I think Scott touched on a good point there, is that, you know, WWE inducts, you know, five or six wrestlers every year. They don't make five or six stars every year, so they're going to have to run it eventually. But do you think that China's Hall of Fame individual honour will be coming at some point? Yes, but not for another, I, I'd say about another decade, maybe. I think a story about, we, we saw with the, the outpouring of, oh my God, China, you know, because she's still noteworthy now. She was in the biggest wrestling period there's ever been. People in my work talk to me about wrestling, sometimes casual fans are flicking the channels and then like, people who maybe don't fit the mould of the one stick thin wrestler that she broke, the likes of Nia Jax and Shayna Baszler. Like people have asked me, like, she was, she related to China, or is she like China? Is she like, you know, 
So she's still in the conversation. And I think, as Scott mentioned, the Twitter page is still open. It's her family that runs it. Her sister's been very vocal about the fact that she didn't care if she went in as part of DX or as herself. She just wanted to go in and she wanted to have that moment with the fans. And I think we saw the fans, how they outpoured and how when she died and how gutted they were. I think something that could follow China is she was ahead of her time, but she was also in the wrong place at the wrong time because I think in this modern era is more progressive attitude towards women and their chosen career paths and what women choose to wear. OnlyFans is a is a classic example. Only when people are choosing what to do with their bodies and how they market themselves, I don't think that would have been an issue now. And it's unfortunate that she died five years ago and that she's not still with us today because and I think as well it's a shame that in the indie era where the likes of Candice LeRae was mixing up with the men Kaylee Ray and ICW you know this all happens because of China and it's a shame because she could make a lot of money in this independent era she would have AEW and WWE fighting over in this era and it's just a shame that she passed away after getting herself you know fighting her demons you know anyone can have an addiction she got herself clean she seemed to be happy. She was living a good life. She was healthy. And it's just a shame she died when she did and she didn't get to have that moment with the fans because I think there's a lot of money left on the table with China and there's a lot of great matches. And as Scott said, number 30 in that first Women's Rumble, Trish was great. Would it not have been better? And as a treat, I've Googled the lyrics, guys. Would it not have been better for number 30 of the first ever Women's Royal Rumble if you heard, don't treat me like a woman. Don't treat me like a man. Don't treat me like you know me. Treat me for just who I am. Would that not have been amazing? Plus, like, if we're using what you can find if you Google a wrestler as a reason to not put them in the Hall of Fame, I mean, the Hall of Fame's going to end up looking like the final scene from Bloody Avengers Endgame, which people just disappearing from the Hall of Fame. Yeah, you make a good point there, Scott. If you're going to make the argument that China shouldn't have gone in the Hall of Fame because she had an adult film career, then why is X-Pac in the Hall of Fame? Like, he's an adult film star. By the same logic, right? I've seen Xavier Woods' arse. He's probably going to go in the Hall of Fame. (laughs) Mick Foley, I've seen a picture of him with a hole in his mouth and a tooth up his nose. He's in the Hall of Fame. You scared about children looking at videos of that? Make your mind up, WWE. Yeah, this is the only thing. We've seen it with Macho Man. We've seen it with uh, Ultimate Warrior, kind of, as well. WWE make too many mistakes with people after they've died. And hopefully, from instance like China, they will learn from this in the future. But yeah, do you know what? See, at the point where four white guys are talking about the financial successes of OnlyFans, that's probably the right time to wrap this up. (laughs) Um, This has been our career retrospective of the ninth wonder of the world, China. Hopefully, you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Big thanks to Andy for joining us. No reason. It's always a pleasure. Cheers to Ross. Thank you for treating me as just who I am. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks to Scott as well. Beware, they'll see in our whistling sticks. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find all of Eat Sleep Suplex retweets content on Spotify, YouTube, and all of those other sites. Scott, I've got some news for you. You are on the show next week. We are going to be talking about the best damn wrestling-related thing on YouTube at the moment, in my opinion, Dark Side of the Ring. Just as well you told me that, because I didn't know that either. Just a phenomenal YouTube series. Mm. Give us a little teaser of what we can expect. I mean, we've talked about Dark Side of the Ring before on Central when uh, the titles and like some of the subjects of Season 3 episodes came out. Like Apparently they're doing episodes on Collision Cree and Brian Pillman 
and stuff like that. So I'm assuming we'll be looking ahead to that and what we can expect from season three. But I think we'll also be going looking back at some of the things we've learned from some of the very in-depth documentaries that have happened in season one and two. We've had ones on Bruiser Brody and the Benoit tragedy. So I think we'll be looking at some of the most shocking things we learned from those documentaries and there'll be some dark subject matter definitely talked about, but I'm sure we'll handle it in a decent way. I was going to say a fun way, but it's hard to make a, a show about a programme called Dark Side of the Ring for yeah, you're right. Bear is a phenomenal YouTube series. So you have seven days, folks. Go away and watch all of those episodes. But that is all from us tonight. I've been Chris Murray. Thank you to my panel once again. And we'll see you next time for Dark Side of the Ring. Bye.